Welcome to Mints on Air and Client Corner. Perspectives from founders, financiers, and friends. I am Josh Fox. In each episode of this podcast, I will be joined by an entrepreneur, an investor, or a member of the startup community. My guests will share their experiences in starting and running a business, investing in a business, and helping to support a business. I hope that my conversations with my friends will provide valuable advice to you, help those of you who are building a business to make it successful, and inspire those of you who are thinking about starting a new venture. My guest today is Anna Turetsky, Principal Venture Investments at the Mark Foundation for Cancer Research. Anna, welcome to the show. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me. Anna, you and I have known each other for over seven years now. I've lost track going back to your time at Lightstone Ventures. I'd like to start by asking you about your current role at the Mark Foundation for Cancer Research. First, could you describe for the audience the mission of the Mark Foundation for Cancer Research? Sure, Josh. So at the Mark Foundation, we are a nonprofit based in New York, and our mission is to partner with scientists to accelerate cancer research that we believe will be transformational for patients in the future. We do that largely through grants to academic researchers. We also do that, and that's my role at the foundation, through investments in early stage oncology companies. And previously, you were at a traditional venture capital firm. Why did you move to a nonprofit? Yeah, I was really excited about doing something that was really mission-driven, really patient-driven, thinking about you know, not only the stages at the point of launching a company and entrepreneurship, but how can you go earlier to look at cutting-edge science and accelerate the path of that science to the point that it's ready to spin out into a company? How do you catalyze that process? And then how do you, um, how do you pick projects and direct projects to where they're going to be most impactful at the end of the day? And I got quite excited about the opportunity to be close to that early stage science and to, yeah, and to be part of launching and building new companies in that space, as well as in the foundation's involvement in existing companies, really make bets that, you know, where others might be a little bit more hesitant to on novel science and novel targets that has really high potential for impact and not just incremental advance with a you know with a market known market size. What does a typical investment look like for you at the Mark Foundation? One of the very cool things about being at a foundation and having the flexibility as an organization to make both grants and venture investments is in a sense for the organization if there's a promising project no such thing is too early because we can see something where someone wants to launch a company and say, you know, maybe that's a little bit too early. We can push that over to the grant side. On the company side, our sweet spot is projects that are about one to three years from entering the clinic. And we also really like to see platforms that have potential to develop, especially on the therapeutic side multiple products that can be used across multiple cancer indications, usually with a precision medicine approach. And could you talk about 
how many investments you typically make per year and compare that to what you see. You know, what does the funnel look like in terms of how many opportunities come your way? How many pitches do you actually take? And then how many investments do you ultimately end up making? Yeah, sure. Maybe it's worth uh, commenting on our overall investment strategy at the foundation. So we have kind of concentric circles, as I like to think of them, of focus, where the core focus is creating a pipeline of grants to investments at the foundation, where we can follow successful projects as they mature and continue to be involved in their life cycle as they spin out into companies, if that's the appropriate path for those projects. And so we can work with scientists that we fund to help them start and build companies. Often we co-invest with other investors who get excited about the same science that we've gotten excited about. And so of the eight companies in our portfolio to date, four of those companies have spun directly out of research that we funded as a foundation and where we were the primary funder driving that research along. So that's kind of the core focus of what we do with our venture arm. Then we have kind of the next layer, which is grantee-founded companies that aren't necessarily tied to the projects that we funded at the foundation. And that's really a way to, you know, another way to see a lot of high-quality science and really leverage our network and continue to build our network in both directions, continuing to, to work with amazing scientists and build those relationships with them across different projects, not just the ones that they've applied to through our grant programs. And then the next layer which is the biggest category, but the one where we're most selective, is what I like to call external investments, for lack of a better word, that are opportunities, cancer diagnostics and therapeutics companies that allow us, investments in those allow us to diversify our overall portfolio, really make sure that we're thinking about tackling cancer from all directions. And so we look across those areas For the grant-related companies, we do a lot of work to stay close to the projects that we funded. There's been over 200 to date and really make sure that we were catching up all the time with the scientists that we fund, both with project updates and in more social ways. We just hosted this week our annual Mark Foundation Symposium, so got to see a lot of the people that we funded and hear them speak about their work, which is really exciting. And so in getting to the answer to your question, in total... We look at somewhere on the order of a couple hundred opportunities per year. We take pitches with something like a third of those opportunities. And then we go into deep diligence on maybe a third to half of the opportunities that we take pitches with. And we end up making about one to three new investments per year. Thanks, Anna. When you evaluate potential investments, what do you look for? Yeah. So we look for a lot of things. We look at really potential for impact first. That's where we tend to think about not only, you know, we tend to ask what's the product that the company is developing? What's the patient population? You know, what's the unmet need there? And what is the biology around, let's say, a first target in a therapeutics company? How impactful on the disease is that going to be? So really kind of connecting the patient side and the science together and making sure that there's a very clear link. And like I mentioned earlier, we like to see platform approaches that leverage either an area of biology across different indications and different targets, leverage a target class where you might be able to 
um, extend some chemistry know-how across different programs, or you know, it can be new immunotherapy target that's applicable across multiple in- indications because there's some commonality in the biology. So that comes first, and then if that gets us excited, then we pay a lot of attention to I mean everything else that a typical VC looks at. So the team at the company and their you know our confidence in their ability to execute our confidence in our ability to work with them and and really work with the companies on both the science and business sides over time we look at the development path is that reasonable the discovery and manufacturing path is that reasonable is the ip sound or other business aspects sound how do you evaluate the team that's a good question i would say largely by I don't want to call it intuition, but you know, we're a team of scientists at the foundation. And so you know, we meet with the team, we're asking them questions. And I think the competency and how people answer questions with what level of depth, with what level of, you know, healthy skepticism and acknowledging where the risks are of what they're doing. I think that really comes through when meeting with people and talking with people. How comprehensive are their plans? Do they think about backup plans? What's their track record? I think that largely comes through in conversation. If needed, of course, we can make, you know, we people have reputations, we can make diligence calls. But I would say the, yeah, the initial approach is really based on our interactions with them as a team. And that makes sense when you are in these pitches, I'm sure there are things that you find that stand out that make for a more compelling story. For entrepreneurs that are pitching to investors, what would you advise them to do in their pitches to investors? Yeah, that's everyone would like to know that, huh? <laughs> Our audience is listening. <laughs> so my advice is to be really clear about the problem that you're trying to solve and your value proposition and what you bring to solving that problem. So what is the product that you're developing at the end of the day? And then how are you going to get there and how long is it going to take? I think if those aspects are there, then the rest of the information can be filled in. Okay. And now kind of flipping the side of the coin from the entrepreneur to the investor. I'd like to ask you about the role of the investor after a financing has been made. So what do you think makes for a good investor to an entrepreneur on an ongoing basis post-closing of a financing? Yeah, sure. Investors, whether, you know, for most of our companies, we take board observer seats. We have one board seat at one of our companies. We're investors who like to be actively involved. I think that's important. And when we look, we syndicate with other investors in all of our deals. And so we actually think about this question as much as an entrepreneur should, because we think about what other investors around the table and what are they bringing to the company. And that's true that what happens after an investment is made is in a lot of ways much more important than the actual investment decision-making process itself. Sometimes science doesn't work the way that you expect it and you have to figure out how to pivot. Sometimes you have team members leave and you have to figure out how to how to solve that issue. And so 
yeah, I think, um, and I think just providing for investors on the board, providing a level of governance is just extraordinarily helpful to keep things organized and ideally as a kind of prophylactic to the company making mistakes. Well, I don't know if we have a functioning government right now, but we have a government with checks and balances (laughs) 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 because you want to have different voices and different experiences there in decision-making. And I think having those people with that bring different experiences around the table and really taking the time to work with companies and think about what they're be involved in what they're doing. I think that's really important. You can't just sit back and watch. And building off of that, even last phrase, you can't just sit back and watch. The word board observer, the phrase board observer literally has observer in it. Can you talk <laughs> about for the people who might not, uh, who might be listening to this podcast, but aren't familiar with what a board observer does and what the role of that is? Could you talk about what a board observer's primary function or, or, or roles are and contrast that from being a, a member of the board of directors? Is the only difference that board members vote and board observers do not, or is there something more to it? Yeah, that's. I think that's a really interesting question. So at the Mark Foundation, one of the things that we do that's unique is we not only ask for a board observer seat with our companies, we also ask for an SAB observer seat that one of our scientific staff will take because we're a very science-driven organization. And so my colleague who's just taken over the SAB observer seat on one of our companies, and he's just a couple years out of a postdoc where he came to the meeting, we're in the meeting, and I'm sending him a message on Slack saying, you know, don't be shy, you can ask questions. And he says, oh, I thought we were just observers. I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think that's true that the phrase even for people who are doing some kind of board observation can be quite confusing. When I talk to most people, like you said, Josh, don't really distinguish the role of a board observer and a board director too much. I think a board observer has the latitude to be involved as much as they want or don't want because they don't have fiduciary duty, responsibility with a company. But at the end of the day, we, especially as a foundation, want our companies to be successful. And so connecting with the the teams at the companies, the CEO, the rest of the management team, and being involved enough to figure out how we can be helpful, I think that's a very key part of the role, right? What resources can we bring from our organization that can be helpful to the company? over time. During board meetings, paying attention and asking same kind of critical questions that board members ask, I think that's really important. Like you said, Josh, board observers don't vote. But, you know, someone once told me that if a board is making decisions through voting, that's your company's not in a very good place. (laughs) (laughs) Usually votes are everyone raises their hand because they all already agree if you're doing it. Otherwise, you probably have some some problems in the company. So I think my takeaways are observer doesn't mean observer, and it shouldn't. Yes. <laughs> um, talk to me about what you just mentioned, which I thought was fascinating, Anna, about if your board is making decisions for your company, 
then I, I think you said to paraphrase that the company may not be moving things forward using a, a structure that you would want. I took that to mean that the board should be in communication with management on a more regular basis and management should be guiding the board on a, on a more periodic basis than in, be, in between board meetings, not just waiting to board meetings to get the board's input and to help move the company forward, as opposed to just voting formally once a quarter if that's when routine board meetings are held. Is that what you meant? I'd love to hear more about how you see the, the interaction between boards and management teams and how decision-making should, in your mind, be conducted. Yeah, I so I agree with that. I, I certainly don't see being a board director or a board observer as just you know dropping in once a quarter to see what's going on. There really should be constant communication, not constant, constant, but you know regular communication between companies and their directors. And I think it's one of the signs of a good CEO to go out to their resources and make sure to be asking for advice. The other thing I meant was that it's very uncommon to have contentious board votes that where there's board, you know, some board members who one way voting yes and some board members voting no. I have seen that very rarely. Why do you think that is? Why aren't there more disagreements or contentious votes? You know, I think a lot of investors are co-investing with people that they worked with before that they trust. And when you have a lot of confidence and trust in your fellow board members who are, in that case, your colleagues, then, you know, anything that you might be voting on is typically, you know, fully, fully discussed and people are getting aligned prior to the actual vote occurring, which is kind of a customary step to to ratify something. That makes sense. You mentioned in your response to the question that I had asked about communications between boards and, and management team members. You mentioned one of the signs of a good CEO is a CEO who's going to reach out to boards and ask for advice. I know you've seen a lot of CEOs. I'd love to hear from you more about what other characteristics would you identify as being common across the best CEOs that you've seen? Yeah, it's so nuanced to describe the way that humans are. So that's a <laughs> bit of a tough question to answer. But but I think the ability to to not be ego driven, to go out and make sure to be asking for advice from people is really important. What was the thing someone told me once? It was that great CEOs are not afraid to hire people who are smarter than them. <laughs> and that allows for delegation and freeing up the CEO's time for handling the most critical roles in the company, namely for the CEO, I would say the would be the interaction with the board and fundraising. Shifting gears now to your experience over time throughout your career as an investor through today, I'd love to get a sense of what you think of the current state of the fundraising climate. How has it changed over time? That would be great for for our audience to hear your perspective on. Yeah, I think we all know that we're not in a super time for biotech. I've heard everything from downturn to from people who focus on the 
public financing space. I've heard from people who have been more on the public side call it a bloodbath. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's um, certainly it's certainly a challenging time for biotech. People ask me when it's going to get better. I say that I thought the bubble was going to burst in 2016. So I'm probably not the right person to predict the timing of anything being previously off by five years. So yeah, I think we can just look at current trends in the time that we're in today. We're certainly seeing some negative impacts of having less capital available. You know, there are probably potentially efficacious drugs where companies can't raise the money needed to put those drugs through clinical studies. And that's quite unfortunate. You know, we're really seeing a dichotomy where there's a lot of companies that are unable to raise capital except from their existing investors. And then we see a few notable exceptions where if a company happens to be farther along at a reasonable valuation, gets a term sheet from a big new investor, we see some really big financing rounds where it seems like a lot of investors are really jumping into the same deals because you know that deal is getting done and there's some signaling that's an interesting company and it's less risky that way. So I think we see a lot more risk aversion in a lot of ways. And the other thing I'll add is that you know one of the good things is that we're seeing companies also try to be more capital efficient these days. And so it's unusual now to see companies spending 50, 60 million dollars to build out a platform and companies are being a little bit more product focused and that might accelerate their ability to deliver drugs into clinical studies and might help them actually reach patients faster. And so this might actually be a good correction that because capital is limited, the way that companies use that capital is really f- more focused and directed. Well, that's good to hear. I, I know I've heard a lot of pessimism in the air, both generally, but more specifically about the biotech fundraising climate over the last several months. So it's nice to hear a ray of hope, some optimism in the end of your response to that question, Anna. One thing that you talked about in that response, and and I want to tie it back to something you talked about earlier as to the one of the roles that the Mark Foundation plays in the broader investment community. You know, one thing you mentioned earlier was that you try to become a catalyst for early science. And you mentioned at the time that some other investors may be hesitant to invest in companies that early. And then in your most recent response to the question about the current biotech fundraising environment, you talked about some investors being more risk averse or hesitant to take on risk. And and one of the reasons why they may all pour money into a smaller number of companies that have uh, high profiles. Could you talk about investment philosophy? I think a lot of people think of venture capital investors as being risk takers as compared to other types of investors, like, for example, private equity firms that may come in later in the stage of a company's life cycle. What is the the risk tolerance for the typical investor? And, and what do you see as being the reality compared to the perhaps the message that's being said about their, their investment philosophy or, or, or approach? 
Yeah, it's a, actually a really interesting question because although, like you said, venture investors are inherently more risk-taking than private equity investors because they're coming in at earlier stages, even venture investors certainly look for ways that their projects or their investments can be de-risked because, because you still want to have confidence that what you're investing in has a chance to be successful. And so, yeah, and you probably have fewer private equity firms investing in companies that will never see revenue. Right? <laughs> so, right. I, you know, so I think, I mean, one of the differences that I see between venture capital and private equity is that in venture capital, if you're trying to evaluate an investment through detailed financial modeling, you're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and in private equity, you're usually looking at companies that can be somehow modeled through some detailed financial modeling. In venture, you're really looking at the quality of teams and science and the unmet needs. And I think it's just a very different set of criteria. And yet, like I said, venture capitalists look for ways to de-risk their projects. One of those ways is syndicating with other investors. So you that adds validation. It also adds more people around the table in this time when there's a lot of insider financings happening for companies. That's much better to not be the only one there. And a lot of groups that have historically even invested the first 40, 50 million on their own, I've heard are thinking more about syndication these days. I think the other way that investors are currently thinking about de-risking is investing in people with great track records. And that's not only the entrepreneurs and management teams of the companies, but that's also looking at the profile of the scientific founders. And I think it's a climate where it's harder for first-time scientific founders to start companies. That makes sense. What I wanted to ask next is building off of this theme, if investors are trying to de-risk more, does that mean that there are a lot of good ideas and science that's actually fairly well advanced and promising that aren't getting funded? And if so, you know who's to step in if VCs aren't taking on this level of risk? Is other ways for us as you know a broader society to get the money in the hands of these promising medical treatments that could really do wonders for human beings. Can donate to the Mark Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> Good suggestion. Certainly there's a role for for nonprofits in the funding projects longer in the academic setting that helps further de-risk them. The role of there's always been a role of government funding, but I hear it's, you know, it, it doesn't keep up with inflation, and so it, which means that it's shrinking. And so a lot of investigators look for other mechanisms of funding that include, um, include nonprofits. There's also a lot of activity in biotech and pharma companies looking to fund academic research through, through various types of research funding. And, you know, we just announced last week a partnership with Takeda Pharmaceuticals. And 
the idea of that partnership is to, you know, we picked a theme, a scientific theme of mutual interest, and we're going to work together to find research projects to fund, to co-fund in that area. And I think that will be really interesting for the investigators who are applying for that funding, because not only does that program provide funding, but it provides group of people through the board and the joint steering committee of that alliance to provide advice to those projects as they move along. And the board includes myself and a representative from Takeda Ventures to really think about spin out and commercialization from the earliest stages of that funding. There's new mechanisms as well that may come online to de-risk research further in the academic setting prior to spinning out companies. That's good to hear. The last topic that I'd like to cover with you today, Anna, is related to you being a woman. I'd love to get a sense of you. What has it been like for you to be a woman in the venture capital industry? Yeah. I was really lucky in in my first role in venture, which is how we met Josh, to you know, someone who I think is one of the early women in venture capital, Jean George from Lightstone Ventures. I think I was quite spoiled there because I think there's, you know, just a really nice, really good relationship that was built there that I don't know if it would have been, I'm not saying it would have been not possible if my first boss in venture had been a man, <laughs> but I don't think, I think Jean is someone who didn't really let being a woman in venture dictate the at all the way that she worked. And I think that was a great role model to have. Jean is a great role model. Um, you are as well, for that matter. Are there many women in the room on either side of the table? Yeah. It's funny. I mean, now being at a nonprofit, there's probably more women in nonprofit than men. And on within our me and my colleagues who join me for pitches with companies where either all women or two-thirds women from our side. And so it's quite rare to be the only woman in the, well, often Zoom room, not real room. But, but on the other side, it can be that we take pitches and it's all men on the other side. And, you know, if it's a company with 10 men involved, I do notice that. And, you know, the thing that's less talked about that that maybe should be talked about more is, not only it's not only about the management teams of the companies and the investors, but on the scientific founder side, there are fewer women scientific founders. There are fewer women who are asked to be on scientific advisory boards of companies. And I think that's something that we can pay attention to a little bit more and try harder to not only bring in more junior scientists from all genders and backgrounds, but yeah, but focus on who's amazing out there who maybe just hasn't had those opportunities yet. So we don't keep going to the same people for, uh, for scientific advisory and founder seats. The other thing I'll say to, to your earlier question is, I think there's very amazing, you know, there's still a lot more male partners in venture than women, but there are a lot of support networks 
for women in venture. And and I don't necessarily mean support networks. I guess I mean I guess I mean networking networks. <laughs> There's a lot of events through groups in in New York and Boston and San Francisco. When I go to JP Morgan, I feel like half of the breakfasts and dinners I go to are something women related. Sometimes I when those types of breakouts exist at a smaller event, I say, wait, but what are the men doing? <laughs> is, there a, is there a men's event around the corner that we're missing? But I think that, you know, there's a lot of women in venture that have taken effort to make sure that there's a community that really helps each other. And I think that's something really wonderful. I'm glad to hear that you're you're seeing those opportunities for women. Yeah. And, you know, and I, Josh, I never... I don't know if I told you this before, but had never realized that women were at any disadvantage until sometime in grad school. So I always said, you know, I'm in high school. Oh, I'm I'm the best person. I was in Omaha, Nebraska. It wasn't that competitive. I'm the best person in math in my class, right? Like clearly not at a disadvantage. In in undergrad, it seemed like there was a lot of both academic and internship and research opportunities for everybody. And then I got to grad school and started thinking, what am I going to do after? And oh, I need to meet people in biotech, in venture, in pharma, and learn the concept of what networking is. And pretty quickly realized that if I were a man, it would be much more comfortable for a first meeting with someone to say, let's go grab a beer after work. But as a woman, it's a little more tricky, whether it's for me or for the other person, if the other per- assuming the other person's a man. And I think that's really unfortunate and is based on, I don't know, some things ingrained in society over the last, I don't know, many years. <laughs> but it's something that I don't know if there's not a quick fix for that. What can we do, though? <laughs> How can we improve it? I think people who are mid-career or more senior in their careers, particularly men who are mid-level or more senior in, in their careers, when they think about who they're having their lunches and dinners and drinks with, make sure that they're not incorporating biases into that. Well, Anna, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for letting me ask you a number of tough questions today. I've always appreciated our dialogue over the years and working together. We've always dealt with complex topics collaboratively, and today has been no different. So thank you, Anna. I appreciate it. Thank you, Josh. And thank you not only for this, but for supporting the Mark Foundation and really trying to understand what our goals and mission are in what we do and helping us then translate that to what's helpful from a legal perspective and always providing great advice. Thanks, Anna. I appreciate it. Until next time on Client Corner, keep on building. Keep on building.